things back then were horrible, and I think that because I fought like a man to survive, I made it somehow easier for the kids coming out today. I did all their fighting for them. I'm not a rich person. I don't even have a lot of money. I don't even have a little money. I would have nothing to leave anybody in this world. But I have that that I can leave to the kids who are coming out now, who will come out into the future, that I have left them a better place to come into. And that's all I have to offer to leave them. But I wouldn't deny it, even though I was getting my brains beaten up, I would never stand up and say, no, don't hit me, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. I wouldn't do that. I wanted to dedicate this talk to all those very brave lesbians, gay men, bisexual, gendered people who've lived before us, who stood up and never said they were not what they were, even though their brains were being beaten up. I dedicate my practice this evening to their courage and to their strength of vision and to the gifts they've given us. I felt, uh, I feel divided actually about giving a Dharma talk tonight. Because from speaking with you, some of you today, it feels like that we're a community that's come together where there's a lot of difficulty being faced. And sometimes it's easier to face those when we actually speak in a circle what's going on to us and just hear each other. On the other hand, it's also nice to hear a Dharma talk. <laughs> and so um, <coughs> I just wanted to acknowledge that, that um, sharing sometimes really helps and that there's going to be groups tomorrow and, um, and that I, I really hope that the groups um, are places where we can share really openly what's happening to us. Would you like a sharing circle now? No. no. Okay. So then maybe I'll just share a little bit of my story with you. I, I want to... Um, I just want to acknowledge with you all the, um, the deepest transformation that's taken place over my life. Because I was an unhappy kid and then I became an extremely unhappy teenager. And I won't go into all the stories why, because 
um, they were understandable. A lot of trauma in my house, both internally in my family dynamic, the political situation in South Africa, and being targeted so severely by the police, and um, my parents being in prison. I had polio very badly, and I nearly died. I mean, a lot of things happened when I was young. And um, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know how to live with all the pain that I was experiencing. I didn't know how to live with all my confusion about it. I didn't, I didn't understand it, and I internalized it and felt that what I was experiencing in some way or another was because I was a failure because there was something wrong with me. And it culminated, um, I'd been in a mental hospital for six months. And um, it culminated in being in a halfway house after hospital and being very attracted to this woman. I hadn't come out yet. So I didn't understand my I mean, of course, I felt my attraction, but I didn't understand it, you know? There was this beautiful woman in this house, or I thought at the time. And I, I wanted to spend the evening with her, and I said to her, and it took me so much courage to knock on the door and say, can I spend, you know, this evening with you? And she said, no, you know, and sort of get out of my space and close the door. And I was, I was so hurt. I was so rejected. It felt like in that one action, all the pain and all the difficulty that I had carried in my life up till that point um, got touched by that rejection. And I felt to myself, I don't, I don't want to live anymore. I, d I just don't want to live. It's just too hard. So I've been saving up, they're giving me in hospital all these, just like in, in Mellorol and um, Valium and Triptazole. I had like four or five of these very, very heavy duty drugs I was taking. And, they, and um, I'd stopped taking them, but they, they, they had kept on giving it to me and I just had stashed it. And I decided that I wanted to, I wanted to kill myself. So I started taking these pills, drinking it and taking it. And then there was this voice that said to me, I don't want to die. And it was like very clear. And I said, kind of like, well, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> I don't want to die. And I was like, no. And then there was a sort of image of some of the people that I had felt traumatized in a relationship with that sort of came in my mind. And I realized in that moment, I just, I wanted to kill them. I didn't want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was very liberating. <laughs> and I realized, and I realized that in some very fundamental way that the issue wasn't just about me, that there was something else going on. And so after that moment, I actively looked for how to understand what was, you know, what was going on in my life. And that, you know, that took me into being active in the student movement and um, 
studying Marxism, which I loved, and then onto feminism because I went to a place called the Liberation School in San Francisco that was doing classes on Marxism, and then that first, some of the first classes on feminism, and then that, of course, um, brought me into contact with Dykes, and I was like, oh my God, I'm a Dyke, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I decided, I got very involved in political movement and got a little, I got a little um, uh, disillusioned and decided to go live on land in the commune, and I did that at Owl Farm, not far away from here, Oregon Women's Land Trust, and lived with, I thought the solution was to be, to just live with lesbians on land and self-sufficiency, and I discovered that wasn't just the solution. Um, <laughs> I mean, I was really making an effort, I, you know, and... <laughs> and um, my first teacher, my first teacher was a, a part Native American Indian medicine woman called Evelyn Eaton. And I studied with her and um, I was deeply touched by her kindness. She was one of the first persons that I met who had cancer, who was in a tremendous amount of pain and really actually wanted to die because she was in so much pain. And yet was deeply compassionate and kind. And um, so I practiced that path of prayer, but it didn't really help me live with my mind. And you can imagine, I think all of you, the kind of mind I had if it was uh, as so turmoil that I actually had tried to take my life. It was a mind that was very deeply distressed. And then I had a friend who had also been in mental hospital, and that was our bond, and she said to me, I think you should go on a meditation retreat. And I was like, no way, Jose. There is no way I'm going on a meditation retreat. And she said, I'll pay for you. And I thought, if she's going to pay for me, I should go. And I went, and I hated it. And at the same time, there was something that resonated, so that even though it was incredibly difficult and I hated it, I went back, and then I went back again. You know, there are some teachers and there are some people who come to the Dharma, who come and who have had the facility and the strength or the karma or whatever, or the gifts or the blessings or whatever we'd like to say, who have come in a very smooth path, who have opened to the deepest openings, and who really live with a tremendous amount of ease. That hasn't been my path. It hasn't been my path. Um, I think I mentioned to you all, the Buddha said that there were these different ways to come to the Dharma. There was the fast and pleasant way, there was the pleasant and slow way, there was the fast and painful way, and the slow and painful way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely in the last category. <laughs> the transformation that this practice has given me has not been a transformation so much about my particular personality. If, if you ever ask my partner, she could spend an hour here telling you about 
my particular faults, you know, the places that needed improving, and she's quite right, they do. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing about being in an intimate relationship. Your partners aren't at all scared about telling you what they think about you. <laughs> that the, the, the deepest change has been an incredible acceptance and opening to the difficulties and to the pain. In that deep and incredible acceptance has come a, a, a sense of humor and, a, and, and an ease about it, so that, so that it isn't that I don't experience. I think the challenges that some of you are experiencing. I think I do. <coughs> but that what this practice has given me is the understanding that those challenges are not a fault. They are not a problem. They have nothing to do with me being a failure. They have to do with the nature of being a human being. And that those challenges for each of us have a particularly unique expression. And that this practice for me has been about coming to love myself in the middle of living my deepest challenges. I have the deepest and unlimited appreciation for this practice because of the gifts and the, the, the healing that it has brought me. The things that Eric and I have said to you are the very things that over and over and over again for 20 years I have been practicing with. And that is just what it has taken. It has taken this incredible determination because I know, and I know you know, what it feels like to be at the very deepest part of despair, to be in the very deepest part of our pain, so much so that sometimes we feel crazy with it. I know that. And I also know that there has, a, there has come about inside of me a place that holds it so that the sense of unity, of life's purpose, of heart, of love, never gets displaced. And that has come about not magically. It has not come about magically. It has not come about because my teacher in some beautiful instant transferred the Dharma to me and suddenly there was this big change. It has happened through 20 years of being with myself and over and over again calling to my best part of myself or my vision saying there has be a way to hold it. I've heard teachers say that there is a way. How can I find that way? Where is it 
in my heart and soul? Where is it? And I've called over and over again, though I haven't believed in a God or a Goddess or divinity or any of those things, I have called for help. And I've said, I need it. I need it. And I've responded to my own call. I've, that call was heard in some part of me and I made another effort yet again to refrain from self-hatred. I made an effort yet again to refrain from believing that somehow my situation was because I was fucked up. I made a tremendous effort yet again to say, oh my God, I'm going totally nuts. I have to do something. I better stand on my head. Whatever, and, I, and I've done all kinds of things. I've jumped around, I've banged drums, I've stood on my head, I've done all kinds of things. <laughs> to break the cycle of conditioning that stops our heart opening to ourselves. To refrain from believing the messages and to allow, to allow the human condition my human condition, my suffering and my pain to be held and it be okay. I talked with one of you, I, ca I can't remember who it was, about that holding. When I talk about holding, I don't just mean holding. I mean those times when I've gritted my teeth and said, just for one more moment, Arena, you can sit here. Just for one more moment and just be with what's happening without changing it. And then I'll go to my feet and my knees. And then just one more moment, and just one more moment, I can have the patience to hold this without changing it. And each of those moments over the years have built, have built a faith, not that's made the actual direct experience easier, but has built a faith that knows that when those experiences come up, it's okay. It's okay. There's no reaction to it. And that feels like the most profound healing, is that I can open and feel the pain that I still feel and there not be any reaction to it. That there not be any interpretation like, oh, I, I can't believe you're sitting up here and calling yourself a teacher. I don't call myself a teacher, but sitting in this role of being a teacher and having all these experiences. You know, what kind of flake are you? I've actually had those thoughts, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but it is such a deep gift. It is such a deep gift, moment after moment, to practice the practice of mindfulness so it sees clearly those thoughts and it just says, no, I am done. I am done taking you on as my reality. It is such a deep gift to have the practice of mindfulness that more and more clearly discerns the thoughts and notions which keep us imprisoned and locked in suffering and the thoughts and notions that actually support us living in a relationship of I can say peace with my suffering. I, I don't know if I'm going to live to 80 years or not, and I don't know if the nature of my suffering will change, but I, 
um, the, the pain, but I do know from the past 20 years up to now that I can say how that's held, I know, will deepen more and more into love and compassion. And what I do know is that my experience is about all of our experiences, that each one of us here has times and places where we are in the deepest suffering, where it is very difficult. And if it isn't emotional suffering, it's the difficulty of physical situations. And if it isn't the, 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 the difficulty of our bodies and bad health or, or difficulties in our physical situation, then it's the deep pain of what's happening with our partners or of death. I mean, it's what Eric was talking about yesterday. There, we, there has been many, many, there have been many, many reasons for us to grieve. It's the human condition. It is the human condition. It is an impersonal process. The difficulties and the suffering we experience are difficulties we all experience. It's not unique. It is not unique. It's shared. And it is because it's shared we can come together and say, I know, I know how you're feeling. I know how you're feeling, and it brings tears to my eyes because I felt it too. And I also know of our capacity, each one of us, to hold it because we have held it. And because that place of holding it in love and non-reaction only gets stronger. It only gets stronger. And it gets stronger through this huge, huge, incredible effort. The Buddha said, he said, walking this path was like walking to a battlefield and fighting single-handedly an army of a thousand foes a thousand times over. Now that's a lot of battles. And he wasn't exaggerating. I think I can say from personal experience. <laughs> he wasn't exaggerating. I mean, we have a lot of battles in front of us. We do. But what's the choice? What is the choice? We've already lived our lives without the effort of this practice. We know what it's like. It can only get better. It can only get better. And the Buddha says it demands the most incredible practice. If you're fighting for your life, imagine that energy. Imagine that energy. You're fighting for your life. You're fighting single-handedly against a thousand enemies. You're fighting that a thousand times over again. Is that a million? A thousand times a thousand? With that energy of, oh my God, this is survival. Now I... <laughs> You, I don't know, you probably all have gone through the same thing of, of being in situations where you think you're going to die. I, <laughs> I went surfing. Um, the first time I went surfing was in Mendocino, California, and, this, and it was a beach. And I can't believe this woman took me surfing. She's like, no problem, you'll be okay. Well, I wasn't. I was on my surfboard and the riptide was taking me out and I was wearing this wetsuit that was miles too heavy for me and I could hardly do this at all. I was on a surfboard miles too big for me and I was freaking out and I was saying, help, help. <laughs> and and um, 
and these waves were taking me and there were these huge rocks, the Mendocino Cliffs, huge rocks, and I honestly thought I was going to die, you know. And I paddled, you know. I, I was like huge, focused, intense energy trying to steer my surfboard away from the rocks. Well, it was, it was pointless, it was useless. I, I must have angels because I got tumbled over and I got landed on this tiny little bit of sand as the <laughs> waves receded. And, and I climbed, I scaled a cliff that is still to this day to me amazing. I, f I forgot my surfboard, forget the surfboard. It wasn't even mine, forget the surfboard. <laughs> I scaled those cliffs through poison oak, I didn't care. <laughs> And the Buddha said, that's the kind of effort, that's the kind of effort that's needed. And that when we apply that wholehearted effort over and over again to refraining from believing negative messages and notions about ourselves, to come back over and over again into a loving kindness thought about ourselves, or to be mindful, or to be <coughs> soft or gentle, when we can do that, he says, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that we will succeed, we will succeed in living with ourselves, with peace and love and equanimity, without being tormented by who we are and how we are. It works. It works. Not that we can do it all the time. I know, sometimes we can't. Sometimes we have to say, the biggest effort is just to let go. Sometimes we have to say, that is enough. I'm taking a break. I'm also very good at taking breaks. <laughs> I, I, I think, did I say to you that when I go on retreat, I when I'm when I actually go on retreat I have a little suitcase that has a pile of murder mysteries, <laughs> chocolate and tuna fish. Without <laughs> your watercolors. <laughs> My watercolors. Also watercolors, that's right. Sometimes it's good to take a break too. But but the breaks are temporary vacations from the work that we know, that each one of us knows really that we have to do, because there's no other way. There's no other way. And we've tried it already. We've tried other ways already. There's no other way apart from that very determined effort over and over again to come back to ourselves with mindfulness. Mindfulness and loving kindness are the key qualities for this deep transformation. It actually does affect your character a little bit. I am nicer than I used to be. <laughs> I wasn't that nice. I am a, a, lot, a lot sweeter as a person. I mean, I can be nasty sometimes, but not nearly so badly and not so much as I used to be. The trans that transformation also happens as well. 
actually the when the Buddha gave the Eightfold Path. Uh, is, is there anyone here who doesn't know the Eightfold Path? Yeah. Who who wants to say what the Eightfold Path is for the uh, uh, the brave new people who come to a retreat for the first time? Some of you have heard it over and over. Go. On. Yeah. Okay. Help her out. Yes. Good. Good. Two more. Yes. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And actually, we can bring those into each moment of how we connect with ourselves. Right understanding. Right thought the three non-harming principles, uh, um, non-right action, right livelihood, right speech, and then effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Right understanding is starting to see the difference between the habitual notions we carry about ourselves and wisdom. What's the difference between the habitual notions we carry and wisdom? What's the difference? Yes, one. Yes, a sense of I. Very good. Another one. Another characteristic. But how do you tell that? If you have this thought in your mind, how do you tell? Yes. Yes, exactly. One is loving. The Buddha said, when it's right thought, it brings about wholesome qualities. It is for the benefit of you and other beings. Were those self-hating thoughts I had for the benefit of myself? No, no, they were, for, they were not for the benefit of myself. It's so amazing to see how many thoughts we have that do not benefit us. That's when I said renounce, renounce thinking, it's renounce that type of thinking that has no benefits. I, I was speaking to someone today and I said, you know what it's like? It's like eating garbage because it has no value and all it does is make you sick. Do you want to eat garbage? No, it has no nutritional value. It's putrefied and it'll just make you sick. But we eat our notions. They make us even sicker than eating garbage. But it's the equivalent. We are eating garbage every time we have that kind of notion, a a habitual notion of ourselves or of the world around us, and it isn't challenged. That's why all the great teachers say we are imprisoned in our concepts and notions. That's why it's imprisoning, because it does not bring us into unity with our true selves. It separates us in the delusion of hatred, of criticism, and sickness. We have, we have all been conditioned. I mean, my deepest pain, my deepest pain in those moments of, of wanting to kill myself 
felt true. They felt true. That's the terrible part of these notions, is that they feel true. But when we apply the litmus test, is this for the benefit of myself? Is this for the benefit of all beings? Is this wholesome and skillful? And that's the litmus, litmus test the Buddha said. I could not have said yes. No. The other important ingredient when we come to, to practice and to understand that in, in each moment of mindfulness is that karma is an absolute law. Karma is an absolute law. For each moment we make an effort, for each moment we intentionally, no matter what the next moment is, we intentionally say, I would like to embrace this. I would like to love this. I'd like to be kind to this. I'd like to be patient. May I endure this for one more moment. The Buddha said that does not get lost. It will always bear fruition. Each moment never gets wasted. And he said, for each moment we're mindful, we can bring this understanding to us and to ourselves. It is never lost. It is never lost. So he said, understanding the notion of karma and understanding the difference between right thoughts and wrong thoughts. We understand already, in some basic way, what refraining from harming does, it brings about a stable mind so that we can see things more clearly. The Buddha said, if you break the precepts, if you're involved in harming, the mind is so tumultuous you can't see clearly. It is the first fundamental step in the step of empowerment is to refrain from non-harming ourselves and others. That means, on some level, starting to challenge the places in ourselves and the things we do that are harmful for us. Not judging, not criticizing, but loving ourselves and in that love, starting to challenge the ways that we might be hurting ourselves or others. Bringing tremendous effort, that energy, that warrior-like energy, bringing our minds to the present moment, holding the moment with mindfulness, mindful. Our, we are full. Our mind is full of the experience. Mindfulness, concentration, keeping the focus and effort. That's the Eightfold Path, just there in that one moment. It's beautiful. And that moment then conditions the mind to the next moment in that wholesome and skillful relationship which conditions the mind again and it builds a momentum and that's what these teachings say is that for each huge effort you make it builds a momentum and then finally that momentum is so strong nothing can break it N the bad habits can't cut through it's like this huge river nothing can cut into it because its force is so strong and those those are the great teachers. Those are the teachers like the Dalai Lama, where the purity is so strong, it can't be broken, even though he has seen the, his closest family and friends being murdered and his country occupied. No reaction of hatred at all. No anger. 
just deep compassion. That comes from those monumental moments of effort, of mindfulness, of over and over again calling into being what there wasn't. Those moments when we feel despairing and there's nothing there, and yet we have that capacity in that moment to call into being something that wasn't there, and it comes into being. Well, really, I say it wasn't there, it's there. It is there. Those energies are there. That's how come we can call them into being in the first place. We just can't see them. As we practice more, it gets clearer and clearer that it's living inside of us all the time. That's the awakened state, when we can feel it all that time, all the time, that deep connection and expression of those qualities. This is not the age of information. This is not the age of information. Forget the news and the radio and the blurred screen. This is the time of loaves and fishes. People are hungry, and one good word is food for a thousand. For ourselves, as well as for the thousand. There are those who are trying to set fire to this world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. The saddest part of (laughs) our stories is that we actually are deeply, deeply beautiful. That we actually, each one of us, are unique blended, magnificent beings. Do you remember that saying of Nelson, Nelson Mandela? You are nothing but magnificent. You are nothing but beautiful. This path is a path of actually discovering what is true about ourselves. All this, this, this incredible suffering and everything that we're experiencing actually is a cover for the deeper sense of beauty and magnificence that we really are. May each one of us here have the determination to discover for ourselves our magnificence. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.org slash donate.